Good morning. I'm your host, Claudia Shambaugh, welcoming you to the February 14th, 2023 edition of Ask a Leader. Today, my guest for the full hour is social entrepreneur, artist, and advocate. And today, it's official. She's an author, too. It's Irma Velasquez, who will bring her recently released book about raising her son, Aaron. The title is Fish Dreams, A Mother's Journey from Curing Her Son's Autism to Loving Him as He Is. We'll be right back. Welcome back to the show. My guest for the full hour is Irma Velasquez, social entrepreneur, artist, advocate, and now author, here to talk with us today about her recently released book about raising her son, Aaron. The title is Fish Dreams, A Mother's Journey from Curing Her Son's Autism to Loving Him as He Is. A little bit about Irma. She was born and raised in El Salvador and immigrated to the San Francisco Bay Area in the early 1960s. She met her husband, a college friend of mine, Sherman, at a Stanford sculpture. A bit of a tell from both of them. They both talk about it a little bit differently. From their son's eventual diagnosis of autism, Irma applied herself personally and professionally to address a gap in the education system and in social services for underserved youth. She founded a school for children with autism and designed creative programs for young adults of different abilities. It's Wings Learning Center as well. She serves as board member of the Bay Area Housing Corporation. She's board chair of the Colores Arts and serves also as board chair of Deep Living Lab Institute. Each of these are all institutions she refers to in Fish Dreams. She completed her Bachelor's of Science in Business and Economics at the University of San Francisco, where she was recently appointed as member of their Board of Trustees. The only reason, folks, that I even get to do this interview is my recent check-in with Irma's husband, Sherman, whom I asked about whether he, is, he and the family had been affected by the recent mass shooting in Half Moon Bay. Fortunately, they're no longer in the area. In the process, therefore, I learned that Irma... Today's guest had recently published this book about raising Aaron. So that's the topic. She comes to us today from her home in Sebastopol, California. Welcome to Ask a Leader, Irma Velasquez. Good morning, Claudia. So nice to be with you. So good to have you on first. Congratulations on a loving, informing, and moving story about Aaron, you, and the world beyond. It is so beautifully written. Congratulations. Thank you. So, Fish Dreams, it's part memoir, part manual. When, Irma, did you decide to take your personal, deeply personal story public? Well, since I started writing, I, I really, I, I was so moved by, by stories that, that parents would tell me. And not only moved, but uh, it was inspirational, and it was also educational. I learned so much about the world of autism, education, advocacy from parents. So it was just uh, natural that I, whatever I was learning, I would want to pass it on as well. I, I feel like that that is one of the greatest gifts that we can give each other is to share our experiences and our points of view and the way we look at the world. And I want to say for listeners, I'm going to refrain from having Irma talk about the process. Um, the uh, some of the that I want people to see the kind of arc for themselves. I really do want people to read this book because of how how well it informs all of us. And and we'll and I'll explain that piece, those takeaways as we cover this. And so I'm um, I'm going to be raising other kinds of particular aspects. And so we'll start with the metaphor, this folkloric reference to fish dreams, how that serves you in this publication so immensely, Irma. 
Yeah, you know, it wasn't intentional when I started writing, but then I, I realized how often I referred to water, to fish, to fishing. Even the last story about my mother would just jumped at me. It was um, it was easy, an easy metaphor, a, a, an open metaphor for me to dive into the fluidity of of life and and how it's been with Aaron. It's been like fishing. It's been like swimming in deep waters and, you know, being refreshed by by so many joyful moments and, and also uh, feel, I, at times I felt like I was drowning. I, I didn't know what to do and um, I was, uh, I, I was pretty deep at the beginning of the process in, in underwater. So it, it just seemed like a, a natural metaphor to bring up and and fish dreams was I referred to that in one of the chapters of the book and how that came about. And when I first heard about the title and I shared it with mutual friends of Sherman's and mine, we're, we we stayed together, folks in college. There, there's those are those kind of huge dividends. Uh, we don't know they're a dividend at the time, and I really prize my friendship with him, and I'm not going to over-personalize this, but when I heard Fish Dreams mentioned, I thought, wow, this is this is going to be really, really rich, and it's sort of, it's it's frankly, Irma, it's going to, it's going to sell. Your book people are going to want to know this. It, it's so, it's such a profound, and it's such a rich metaphor that I imagine that you're probably going to get a lot more readers who are going to be drawn to the texture and the the reach of all that. So you were saying you were providing people, and I mentioned it, that's part memoir, part manual, that the availability of literature when Aaron was in early childhood, was it was pretty a paltry amount. It's sort of like stuff I'm that I was aware of at the time, that there was, you know, the literature stopped at early childhood. And there was no mapping out, okay, this is where you're headed with, with uh, puberty and with transitioning and different kinds of post-early uh, childhood instruction. So this is your attempt to to bring people on board with, you know, this this is what happens because Aaron is now 29 years old. He's almost 30 in summer, right? Yeah, he'll be 30 this year. So you're, this is a contribution to where it was. So as you... As you consider in your book Aaron's acquisition of language and communication skills, it brought up to my mind, I wondered about Aaron's personality. The reader takes in your personable treatment. The reader similarly wonders about his person and what makes Aaron tick. Can you can you give us... Um, that there's there's communication and there's personhood. So I, I'd like for you to sort of explore that. Those are there are two different kinds of aspects of an individual. I don't know if personality is something that is it tightly bound in with communication. It's hard to separate the two. Or is a, tell us about the your treatment of his personality in the book. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that that's been a, a really um, I've sat with that question for, for a number of years as I was writing the book because as people would read it and they would say, well, you know, I'm not, I'm not seeing Aaron in here. Well, who is, what is he like? Tell me about him. And I wrote uh, some of the poems through his words because I wanted to honor him and I don't want to speak for him. What my reflection is when I express or I interpret certain actions they're my interpretation of his of his behavior. Sometimes, you know, it's very clear, but his essence comes through when you see him, when you meet him, when you spend just a few minutes with him. People are really touched, and they connect very deeply with him. And that is really hard for me to write, because this is my experience, and to write about his experience in his world would have been um, just... It just didn't seem right. I, I would not be honoring who he is because he is so much. He's such a an incredibly um, humble, loving, uh, beautiful human being um, that I I just couldn't could not write that much about him other than through some of the poems and some of the be, the way that I you know interpret his behavior or I express his behavior. In fact. Early on, uh, I gave him the manuscript 
this is a few years ago, very, yes. you know, one of the very first drafts of the of the book. And I printed the whole thing out uh, I was going through it, and I gave him a copy of it, and he, he can read, and he would just, you know, he would slowly turn the pages, and it, it took a while because there was much, uh, a much longer uh, book at that time than, than when it came out. And then it got to a point where he was really upset. I, did, I, I wanted to see what he was reading, but he was really upset to the point he got up, and darted at me and became very aggressive. And I I wanted to know what it was. And it was a poem that I had written about him, an interaction that he had with my mother. And I didn't put it in the book because of the way he responded. But I could I could just feel his sensitivity about this work and and he knows it's about him and about our relationship. So I wanted to be really careful in how I I express his personality here. You know, we're complex beings, and, and he is a very complex and beautiful human being. This is fascinating. Uh, we don't know that there was that iteration that Aaron was, was privy to, shall we say, that uh, reviewed this. So... What is his impression of this book? With um, he's read all, he's read he's read most of it. He's read all of it. He's read the the poems that um they cut mustard. Tell us about his reaction to this now iteration, the one you've published. Yeah, I I, I gave him one of the first copies, and I I wrote you know a dedication for him in the front. Right. I and I gave it to him. I think it was around Christmas time, and you know he took it and he he. Kept, actually, I don't know what he did with his copy because he tends to put things away. So he didn't have any outwardly expression that I could I could see. I said, this is for you, I, I, and thank you for giving me this chance to write about us. And, um, you know, sometimes his expressions are very subtle, and that is one of the most beautiful gifts that he's given to me is that to stop and to really listen to what he is trying to tell me because his communication sometimes is very outward, and but most of the time it's very, very subtle. And, and it has a lot of energy in what he is saying just by his being um, silent in that moment. So silence has, has a great deal to do with the way he communicates. Wow. I don't know if that answers your question well, or no, not. Well, no, it but... does. It answers between a lot of lines. And I really, really mm-hmm. uh, am so so, t- so moved by uh, for uh, that element of that. And so we're, we'll talk about communication and language, listeners, but I want to go into the aspect of sensory processing to bring everybody along with us to better deal with um, sort of that's what what he's dealing with. And I'm going to hope that we can explore some ways that he's dealing with this that help us. We can talk about how we are in a different setting with organizing and responding with our senses. So you learned early. uh, Talk about, um, I guess, I don't know if you want to say the earliest sort of aspects of where you learned that he had just, he, he had to manage and you had to understand how he's processing all the senses that we just absolutely just take for granted. So I'm, it's a very open-ended question, but I want to mm-hmm. start out, get out of your way and let you explain that because it gets, it, it sort of, uh, it ex- becomes exponentially more complicated throughout mm-hmm. the developmental stages that we all grow into and through. So where would you like to start with how he has addressed that sensory processing and yeah. you yeah well first it's it's really a complex field and i i'll just tell you my experience with Aaron initially when he was a baby and he was everybody will always say he was so he was so easy and he was an easy baby he was he was hypo sensitive and he still is to a certain degree so there's hyperactive hypersensitivity where we tend to be really ultra sentiment to the slightest connect uh, connectivity to to a certain stimuli mm-hmm. or this hypo and he was very hypo sensitive and um 
and to some degree he still is. So he would cut his hand, really ugly gash on his hand, and he wouldn't cry. You know, there was like, what's going on here? This. Uh, so there was hypo, uh, he, he would scratch his, his knee really badly and he, he would just look at it and, and, and go on. So that was very evident at the beginning and he would need a lot of stimulation. And he still, that's one of the, his regulating go-tos is sound and stimulating, hyper-stimulating himself to the point where sometimes he gets overstimulated. And he has seizures, for example, and it happened just yesterday. And so the way that we, you know, address that was in different ways. Uh, one of the poems I write is about we used to rub his his skin with with these plastic brushes to stimulate his his sensory capacity. So in the morning we would take this brush and and brush his, you know, his arms, his legs, and that would arouse him a little bit to sort of wake him up, wake his body up. So there was that, but then there, there was a need to be really sensitive to what was going on. How was he responding? Maybe he needed some time out and he would go inside himself and he, he needed that under stimulation. But sometimes he needed to be more stimulated to be aware of his environment so he wouldn't, he wouldn't fall or he wouldn't he would follow directions or he would be involved in our social interactions, wherever that would be. So there were so many situations, especially when it came to being in kindergarten. When he was six, we decided not to put him in, into a special education classroom, even though you know at that time he was clearly diagnosed and, and we knew he had autism. And, but we decided to enroll him in our neighborhood school. We had a most wonderful teacher, could not have been any more caring, educated, engaged kindergarten teacher that he had. And she, um, you know, she took a lot of special time for him. He was the only child in the, in the classroom with autism, and he had a one-on-one aide. But even that was so difficult for him, and I, I write about that in the book, even with the most supportive and willing individuals. And they did not know she, uh, Ms. Liz Jordan, which I, I love very much and I see every so often, she was the most loving teacher and someone directly connected with him on a daily basis throughout his day. They d- did not have the background to to deal with him, to help him be engaged. And he wasn't a difficult child. He was very easy to be with but he had a really hard time just navigating everything that goes on in a classroom of, you know, of 18 children, five-year-olds. It's not an easy place to be for six hours a day. So, I don't know if, if that gives you an idea of some of the, some of the uh, challenges that he may have faced I, internally as he was going through those early years of his life. It does, and also, Irma, it tells us a lot about the challenges on you when you're, you have to be really more than all hands on deck, How every, every neuron for you on deck. When you're talking about, you have to be really attuned to Aaron, and, and we'll talk, mm-hmm. we're talking about the early childhood, and we keep moving through the phases here, but to arouse some of his senses, you had to know, you're sort of like, your volume dial, you got, you got to turn it up a little bit, and then you've got to sort mm-hmm. of figure, oh, whoa, 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 we got to turn it back down again. And so it's mm-hmm. it, that I want for people to think about how over these years, your engagement with him, the, the level of attunement, and that you're not completely burnt out right now. And it's, and the arc, as I, I really do want people to read this, the arc you definitely develop in Fish Dreams about how that you've made it made it yours, made this work out. Um, Mm -hmm. So more about the sensory processing. In preparation for the interview, we talked about, for people to understand, if they're in, let's say, a noisy arena, they can can adjust things, they can put earplugs in, they can do, they can do a, or it's, name the kind of a setting where there's so many stimuli around, and then a person can duck out, they can leave. But Aaron, Aaron, 
doesn't go somewhere else to necessarily turn down the sensory processing. It's always there with him. So let's go back to that analogy that you gave me so people understand it's a 20, I called it a 25-7 when we talked. Or 20, I kept mm-hmm. bracketing up 26-7 um, sort of proposition for Aaron. So your attunement to him, as well as that that idea that it's always with him, we have the opportunity to duck out from sensory overload. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Well, that's the biggest challenge of being in, in the in natural settings and why schools and now public schools are more aware of the needs, thank goodness, over the past 20-some years that I've seen education evolve. There are more, there's more training with teachers around all these different issues. But one of the things that it makes it, I mean, three, three aspects, three things happen. We live in a world where a lot of things are assumed, let's say in a regular school setting. Uh, you know, there's certain things that children come in in the morning, they sit down, they go through a certain routine. There's an there's a, a understanding of what happens in a school. So there's, there's the social settings, and there's a, what's going on in the individual with autism, where that's high sensitivity to everything from smells to sounds to, to sights to textures to lights to everything. There's that hypersensitivity, or in Aaron's case, a combination of hypo and, and hypersensitivity. And then there's a demand that happened. There's a communication that is really difficult. Aaron was not is nonverbal, so his communication skills are not like the other children where they just you know, they say, hey, teacher, or I need this, or I want this, or raise their hand. And the processing is, is much slower for him. So you have all these components, and you have a time that is, you know, spent in the classroom where so many demands are made of him. Um, and actually, he did run away a couple of times in, in, in school. He, he would go to the bathroom to get away from the classroom whenever he wasn't seen, you know, he, he ducked out or he once he almost left the school grounds. Trying to get away from my in my in my understanding is from all the, the the commotion that was going on in the classroom. So that was he, his effort to no regulate. One. He was regulating what was what sensory right. load he was getting. That's that was a rational That's, move for him. Right. He was trying to to regulate, and, you know, this is when he was small. As he got older, the most important words that he learned was yes and no. And it, he wasn't able to motor coordinate the understanding of what that meant because it's so confusing. You know, there's all of these ways that we say yes and no. It's not that simple when you start to look at our communication. Uh, so when he was seven or eight, he started to say yes and he started to say no. And that gave him an incredible amount of power so he could make choices. But sometimes he said no, and people would try to get him to do something. You know, it was like, well, I just said no, and I thought that meant this, but then you're telling me yes. So our world is very complex. The way we communicate is very complex. So we started to really honor his choices. And sometimes we couldn't honor his choices. You know, he, he wanted to do something that we we couldn't. For some reason, he wanted to go somewhere in the middle of the night, and we couldn't do that for some or because it was too late or whatever other logical you know situations arose. But we try to honor as many of his choices as we could. And even to now, you know, now I'm. He would say he would ask me for something. I says, Aaron, you know, we can't do that right now. We have to wait. And could you wait five minutes? So over the years in the school settings, that's what they work very hard at doing is giving the individuals choices, teaching them how to wait because that's hugely important. We don't realize how important that is. That how time is seen so differently from from a from a perspective of when you don't understand what's going on around you. Time, you know, five minutes could seem like five hours, and if you don't know that. When you're going to go home, you think you're going to be in that cruciating situation for forever. So all of those tools are developed where you have clocks, you tell them it's five minutes, we're going to leave in five minutes, we're going to leave in four minutes, we're going to leave in three minutes, two minutes, now 60 seconds. 
and that is that's taken in and they start to self-regulate. At least Aaron started to self-regulate over the years, still continues. So, like for us, like you're saying, we can say, okay, I'm out of here, see ya, and take off. But the children or individuals with autism have less choices to do that, especially in school environments. Yes. For those of you who've just joined us, my guest is Irma Velasquez, who's written a wonderful tome on raising her son, Aaron. The book's entitled Fish Dreams, A Mother's Journey from Curing Her Son's Autism to Loving Him as He Is. It's published by Deep Living Lab. And we're talking right now about the whole expansive realm where Aaron lives of regulating, addressing, under, and he understands it. I mean, he's, so uh, this whole sensory processing. So I would like to, for, I would, while we're talking about this, you do, you do give us a little insight about the, um, the, it, the, the pressure this has put on your marriage. You've been, you focus at great lengths on Aaron's needs that you're discussing right now, and then there, it, it can really put a lot of pressure on a marriage. And I remember from a neighbor in nearby University Hills who was involved with a lot of families with one offspring being on the autistic spectrum, and that person observed there were either marriages that stayed, that remained intact, or they they totally eroded. And so I'd like for you to address this, as, as you, you've already told us a lot about managing all of these and learning and engaging and being attuned. So talk about what's that's meant for for Sherman and you to deal with this. Well, it's, uh, yeah, I think I see my, my friends with children and I see that, that they have, Raising children is not an easy task for anyone. No, uh, not and, at all. And and I think that the very first um, incident where I realized that uh, Sherman was feeling out is I, I and we only have Aaron, so it, it, I don't have to be with five of three other children. I I have family. I have friends who have more than one child on the spectrum. I don't know how they do that. But we had Aaron, and it was a close-knit family, the three of us. Um, we had a great deal of support. My parents lived close by. Sherman's parents lived close by when Aaron was growing up. So we had a great deal of support. And yet, my focus was totally on Aaron. Um, and I was, um, you know, just consumed by it, by everything that, that needed to be done. So... Uh, there was a time where Sherman just said it, you know, I, I, where, what am I? What am I here in this relationship? Where am I? And I realized that I was just ignoring him totally. And and also, I, a few years later, I realized I was ignoring myself. Mm. So it wasn't just, um, it, it was just, wasn't just a focus on Aaron. It was, it was that everything else didn't seem to matter in some way. It was just, getting him out of this super that in those years I called autism, getting him out of it into a, into a normal life. That's how I saw it back then. I didn't see it as this is this is our life. You know, this is this is this how we are as a family, how we function as a family. So uh, it was a uh, an eye eye opening. I mean literally um, Sherman just Said right out, I can't do this anymore, and and uh, we begin to be more expressive of each other. We begin to talk through things more, even though some of the issues I I take care of most of Aaron's needs, and uh, but he was involved. He was involved in school. He was on the board for a while, and he began more. He became more engaged, and I began to bring him in more, and and at the same time, I started taking caring taking care of myself. And um, that's where the the work with Deep Living started back in uh, 2002. And so it was a process of, of realizing that, you know, this is a way of life. 
this is not a fix-it. There's nothing here. It's, it's not a, uh, a something that's going to stop being the way it is. This is how our lives are going to be. And, you know, we uh, we love each other, and we've been open as uh, as open as we can be through the whole process, and it hasn't been easy. And it's hard when I, I have several friends who have... Uh, ended their marriages through the process as well. So I'm asking this in the wrong order, but I I wanted for you to have a chance to speak to the fact that both your husband, Sherman, and you share two very interesting features. You're both repatriated from other countries in the 1960s, and you're both deeply entrepreneurial. You could talk about how those really profound aspects about you have contributed and continue to contribute toward your your solving these issues? Uh, well, there's a third one that's really important, which is we're both artists. He, uh, he's a pianist, as you know. Yes. He loves piano, and that's his second love. And uh, I'm, I'm a visual artist, so that's, that's a third one that, yes. that has been really important through the whole process. So the first one was you know, our, our backgrounds, We, even though we're from very different parts of the world, our, our values, family values were very similar. His father moved from Portland to San Mateo, and we, they were very close to us. My parents lived within five minutes of our house. So that family, the family connection, the importance of taking care of each other has always been part of the way that we, that we look at the world. So... And not only our parents, but my brothers, my nieces, my nephews, my, you know, we're a very close-knit family. The second part, the entrepreneur piece, is that we, we both, we met when we were both starting our own businesses. I had just left the corporate world, and he was starting his company at that time. So we both have this way of being that, you know, if people are not going to do it, we, we are the ones that are responsible for our lives, and if we want to do something, we just we do it, and sometimes it's messier than others, but that's, that's the entrepreneurial process is that that's what our parents did. His parents left China in a very difficult situation, very different than mine, but they both decided, you know, this is not going to work. Let's make a new life in a new country. So we have that, you know, that, that energy that's part of us. And the third piece, which is, is our art, is really a place to go to, a place of refuge, for both of us, Sherman spends hours every day practicing piano and listening to his, his music. And every day I, I do some kind of artistic, something artistic. I create something, whether it's in clay or drawing or painting, whatever. But it, it's part of my own self-nourishment. So those three things have kept us connected to each other, connected to other people, so that our, our our world hasn't been insular. It's it's really created a fascinating community around us, and it just it it opens up our world. Uh, it has opened up our world and Aaron's world as well. Exactly. I wanted to bring a shame on me for not bringing in the third element. It's right there. It's never leaves my mind, Irma. But so when mm-hmm. let's say you're taking up your artistic interest, let's say you're working with, I'll say canvas to be, you know, to carry a lot of different mm-hmm. act, artistic activities, or Sherman goes to the, the keyboard. So is that, are you sort of communicating to Aaron, this is where you are, or you're inviting him, or you're, you're just uh, relaying what you need to do or what you're uh, inclined to do? I mean, is that, that third element of what you share, is that something that is a way of engaging Aaron, or that communicating something to Aaron? Well, it started out being that way when he was, you know, small Sherman would play something and Aaron would come up to the keyboard and want to play with him. And we always thought that since he loves music so much that he would pick up the piano or some instrument. And it, it, he was interested in listening, but, uh, you know, we, we brought some teachers to the house to see if he would, if it would pick it up. And, he just never gravitated towards picking up an instrument with that, with the same passion that Sherman does. 
And the same with me. You know, I started an art school back when he was three years old before he was diagnosed because I wanted to bring him into the world of art. I want him, wanted him to be exposed to, to that the same, the, the same person, the same tools that I have been exposed to and that has given me so much joy. And he he didn't gravitate to that either. So we do it now. It's more of a personal thing, and if. You know, if, if I'm painting or drawing or something, I invite him, I give him a pen, and he comes. I have some of his drawings, some of the paintings and drawings that he's done. But it's not something that he that he gravitates to. And, you know, I need to honor his likes, too. He has his own desires, his own, his own interests. Uh, he loves books. He always has a book on one hand and a, and a video on the other. He, he, he's... He seems to be more drawn to words than to than to images. So I don't know how ha- it has impacted him, but he, there's always some some paintings or some music around the house that, and I I know that he's uh, that he has um, you know taken it in his own way. I'd like for you to take any opportunity here in the time we have remaining, if there is an excerpt that you would would be uh, kind enough to share with us. And I'll, while you're scrolling through some possibilities, I'm just going to remind listeners, my guest for the full hour today is Irma Velasquez. And we're talking about her book about raising her son, Aaron. And the book's title is Fish Dreams, A Mother's Journey from Curing Her Son's Autism to Loving Him as He Is, published by Deep Living Lab. And available, folks, either from that Deep Living Lab Institute or your favorite independent book dealer. That's that's where I always like to steer customers there. Or I think even on Irma's own uh, website. So is there either you mentioned the, the poems that you lead most of the chapters with or some other part that you would please share with our listeners, Irma? Uh, yeah, here's um, a piece from... The chapter is short, uh, called Meteor, and it's um, it's about when I realized that he knew more than I thought that he knew, uh, what he knew. We were trying to teach him uh, some skills, and he, he blew us all away by uh, telling us that he, already, he was past that, so... This is the end of that chapter when I uh, had that realization. Um, We looked at each other, and this is uh, sitting around a classroom after a group of uh, teachers and therapists were trying to teach him how to use a um, a communication device. So we looked at each other, our mouths half open. Allison took her notes, crumpled them up in a small paper ball, and threw them in the garbage. I realized at that moment that Aaron was like a meteor coming towards us. He had his own path. We were not only trying to predict the trajectory of his future, but also trying to guide its course. The force heading towards me was constantly changing, and I needed to change with him. It was clear he had much to teach us. Our job was to become quiet, listen, and watch. He was moving fast. Sometimes he disappeared behind the cloudy skies, but he was always there. I need to be present, vigilant, and ready to act when he landed. So that's, that hasn't changed over the years. You know, he's, he's been a, um, an incredible human being that I always had something to teach me, and I, I feel like I need to just be quiet and listen and... Uh, Thank you. When yeah, I, I read it, that, it was so riveting, and I'm so glad that's... I mean, there's so many passages to share, but the, thank you. That is that is just absolutely, remarkably uh, perfect for a, a brief uh, sharing on the show. So I I want to... We, we talked on uh, in preparation on background about with the sensory processing, there are comorbidities that may either they may mask some aspects of autism or the autism may mask those other comorbidities so what uh, in your book you talk about 
the epileptic seizures that beca- that was about the onset. It was after it was after puberty, I think. Um, if you could talk about some of those comorbidities that make then a coming of age and maturing on the autistic spectrum extremely complicated, and I don't know if you have a prescription for people to to understand and um, see if that meteor is bringing a, a bigger throw weight than it used to have. Yeah, yeah, that was... Uh, I didn't realize how big that meteor was going to be. Um, they, you know, people brought it up, uh, physicians brought it up when, when he was diagnosed that the puberty was going to be challenging. Uh, I just didn't know how challenging, what that, what that meant for us. But it, right at the time... Uh, of puberty, that's where he started to have grand mal seizures. Uh, I think he was 11 or 12 or so when he had his first grand mal seizures. But it, he had seizures before then, They're, except they were called, they were more absent seizures. And I, looking back at situations where he would just either all of a sudden start pacing and running from one side of the house to the other, almost like uh, you know, a little crazy guy that something was happening inside of his head and he didn't know what to do with. He would just run and the the look on his face was this fear, um, like something is going on and, and I don't know how to say and what to say it. He was, you know, he he, he just, he had have no way of expressing what he was feeling. So he, he did have absence seizures before the grandma seizures when it was obvious that, that it was epilepsy. And it it made it, you know, at that time is everything is happening. Your body is changing, social uh social environment is changing, everything just hit at once. Um and it's difficult because in Aaron's case and it's it's different, I've seen it different uh differently it manifested differently in, in, in different people, is that in his case it was aggression his his aggression towards those who were around him just came out and he would come and want to scratch and squeeze your hand to the point where, I mean, I had, I still have scars from, from uh, those days where it was just, uh, it, it may seem like it was a behavior. Sometimes it was behavior and that's, a, that's the difficulty mm-hmm. in, in evaluating uh, these comorbidities that we don't know what's going on internally because communication is so, is so difficult. Sometimes they can say, you know, uh, I'm feeling, you know, I'm hurting or I don't know what's going on or I need, I'm going crazy or I need to scream or whatever it is. But when the communication is not there or when they're not allowed to, to express themselves, I think, uh, I'm speaking for Aaron, it, it just exacerbates. And um, it, in his case, was more of an aggressive aggressive episodes where, you know, they had to... Uh, at school, they they had to call us and say, "You need to pick him up. We we don't know what to do." So every time we get a call from his teacher, it was like, "Oh no, now what, what did he do?" And there were times where he would be engaged in a, a situation in, in public, and people would think that the that he was fighting with somebody, but it was actually they would try to control his aggression and get him to a place where he was safe. And I, I mentioned a couple of, of instances in the book that, that happened, you know, where police were involved and they were trying to take him in because he thought that he was being, uh, you know, aggressive towards people. And, and, and all of a sudden, his, his, um, he would just turn off and, and there was another person in front of, of, of you. So it was like, oh, what happened to that, that kid who was, who was, uh, you know, angry or he was trying to rip your clothes off. So it's, um, you go from these situations where quick, very quickly they can change from one to another and they're very difficult to predict, especially when people come in in the middle of, of an episode. It's So it's, I, I would encourage people not to judge uh, so readily when we see parents uh, or even, you know, old, older individuals uh, behaving in ways that may seem 
you know, out of sorts and they, they may not fit with the environment. Something is going on. Something may be going on that you really don't, we can't see. So I would just encourage people to suspend judgment. Well, suspend judgment. And uh, we're giving everybody a checklist, including, I mean, the, the, the need for law enforcement to really, as, you know, we, we're, it's a big conversation about the appropriateness of a law enforcement reaction versus a somebody dealing with some social needs. So, But for people mm-hmm. not to judge, but also to read where they can, maybe they, I mean, they're a stranger. Maybe, is, there, is it possible a, a stranger could be more calming. I mean, just say, hi, I'm, mm-hmm. I'm happy, I'm happy to see you. I'm, I'm thinking very specifically where like in a, let's say a farmer's market setting. And so that means places you mm-hmm. see people over and over, you know, week to week. Mm-hmm. And so uh, uh, are you giving us a little takeaway here is that we, I could just, is, is it appropriate just to say, I'm happy to see you today. You look mm-hmm. like either you, I could say you look like you're having a good day today or it looks like your day is not you're not having such a good day. Is, are those things overstimulating mm-hmm. or are you're thinking, OK, everybody, no, follow through and and be kind, be doing something like that. Yeah, I uh, I would encourage people to to be as authentic about themselves when they meet someone that they don't know how to interact with, and maybe whether it's verbal or they're having, uh, you know, different, uh, their behavior is not what you expect, I would just turn inward and say, this is how I'm feeling. Isn't this a wonderful day? I I feel happy. Come from a place of where you are rather than to try to interpret where that person is and, um, or even... Even saying, um, you know, yeah, it's, I'm really happy today to see the sun. That's you. You're not putting, you're not interpreting the other person's behavior because you have no idea. If they could be smiling, but internally that could be a sign of a fear or, you know, anger or something else. So, or asking yes and no questions is, is uh, rather than asking for a comment saying, would you like this or you like that? It's very, uh, you know, would you like to go here or would you like to go there? It's much easier to respond to a yes or no question or choice than to say, how are you feeling right now? You know, that's that's a very difficult question to answer from uh, uh, for anyone because you have to take your time, check in, and then articulate your emotions at that point. And for an autistic individual who has difficulty in expressing themselves, that that could be a trigger because they don't know how to express or even understand the question. So keep it really as simple as you can and come from from yourself. What's happening for you in that moment? I think there's also, Irma, another bit of uh, information we get in that encounter is their company they're with, a caregiver, a family member, something, and so you can ask for permission. Or, but I, I the cue mm-hmm. I've gotten in those settings I just described, where they look at me like, oh my God, how did how did she know how to say something like that right now? So I thought, all right, that cue I got was it was permitted the interaction, but mm-hmm. uh, but there may be all, other cues, and for us to read those of the company present. So there's a lot of information yeah. and that impact could just be doing a lot of good that, you know, we, we can, uh, we can all surround you do something good for yeah. for once. <laughs> well, I think that what you just brought Claudia is really, really important is asking permission is, is for anyone, you know, it's asking them, may I, may I, but asking the individual, because sometimes mm. when Aaron is with uh, you know, with a caregiver or with me, they say, can I ask him, blah, blah, blah. You know, can I ask him if he wants it or does he want it? I mean, he's right there. You wouldn't do that to another person. You would, So why not ask ask him directly, may I, may I, you know, may I offer you a, a cookie? Uh, may I, whatever it is. But talk to to the individual directly and ask for permission before offering anything because I think that that's what we all want. It really isn't any different for individuals uh, who have limited communication skills. Well, I appreciate... different communication skills. 
so that's mm-hmm. that's a part of the um I was wanting to just have give you a chance to sort of send us packing with some other advocacy takeaways that be as we close within the next minute. If there's I know yeah, you the, Yes. There is there is so much so much out there right now. I would encourage people to get involved in uh, outside of your home because uh, like we were talking about there's so much there's so much it's such an intense engagement with our children and it's really good when you start talking to people you hear about how other people are dealing with you hear about different tools different resources so get involved with parents who have in children not just with autism but with different abilities and there is a website sfautismsociety.org which I was on the board uh, of that organization for many years. They're in the Bay Area, but their website is rich with resources, and they're in the home page. They have three steps on how to get involved. You want to advocate for your child, how, how to contact your representative in, in Sacramento uh, or in Washington. They have a way of, for you to do it, and it's easy to follow. So if you want to get involved that way, do it if you want to get involved in learning more about the education system. You know, sign up, become part of the your child's school community. Uh, there's just so many ways, but I would encourage people to to do something outside of the home because otherwise, you get to be you get drawn into this very intense and emotional. Of course, our children are close to our hearts. But it's it's good to go out and, and expand your your awareness in other fields, whether it's this or art or reading or anything else. It, um, guilt sometimes takes over when we hmm. we feel like we need to to do something quickly and fix our children. But you have to remember that we need to take care of ourselves as well. That is super important. Thank you so much for that, Irma. I really appreciate the time, and I'd like to extend warm regards to Aaron and to Sherman today. Thank you so much, Thank Irma. You. Thank you, Claudia. It was, it was fun. Oh, my guest was Irma Velasquez, who's written a wonderful book that's been the focus of our interview today. The title is Fish Dreams, A Mother's Journey, from Curing Her Son's Autism to Loving Him As He Is, published by Deep Living Lab. And again, I remind people, your favorite independent book dealer or Deep Living Institute is going to help you get a copy. That's my wrap. Next week, we'll bring back Branda Lynn, this time in her capacity as Irvine Planning Commissioner. Live Nation is going to go uh, after our municipal wallet. It's on today's Irvine City Council agenda. It starts at about 2. Talk with you next week. Thank you, everyone, for listening.